I want to tell you three monkey stories. The first monkey story comes from Aesop. It is, to my knowledge, the only Aesop story where all the characters are human and none are animals. It includes a mother and her son. The mother had put some nuts into a jar and then had left the room. And the little boy, wanting some of those nuts, went in and opened up that jar and put his hand in and grabbed a whole fistful and then couldn't get his fist out of that narrow opening. And he was in a rage. He was upset. And he started to cry. And his mother came in the room and she said, let go of the nuts and just extract your narrowed hand out of the jar. And he said, but mother, if I do that, I won't have any of the nuts. The second monkey story comes from my friend Emil K. Jones. He was a fellow student of mine at Trinity College in Bristol. Originally, he came from Sierra Leone, and Emil was one of the funniest persons I've ever known. He was a very short black fellow from West Africa, uh, and funny things happened to him all the time. When Emil walked in the room, he just smiled. He would say in his accent, hey, man, and everybody just cheered up around him. Well, one of the stories he told was raising money to go to seminary. He and some friends, uh, one of the friends had a father who had a plantation, which was right next to the jungle. And so uh, they would go, and the monkeys would come out of the jungle into the plantation and eat all the stuff there uh, that they weren't supposed to be eating. So they got these jars. They were maybe two and a half feet high. They had very prominent base going out. They tied a rope around that staked it into the ground, laid it on its side, sprinkled some nuts in front of it, and then put a whole bunch of nuts in the jar. The monkeys would come out of the jungle, they'd eat some of those nuts, see that they were coming from the jar, stick their hand up into the jar, grab a fistful, and then again, could not get their fists out of the jar because their hands were full of nuts and then they would scream. And when they started to scream, uh, Emil and his friends would come down with blankets and throw the blankets over them uh, and then get them into a cage and then very shortly afterwards sell them to people who were representing the interests of zoos in North America and in Europe. And they made, he said, a lot of money that way. Emil did an imitation of these monkeys because the monkeys not only screamed, but they would leap from one side to the other and the jars would go with them and they would go back and forth and back and they're screaming and making that wonderful noise. But you know what? They went into imprisonment. The greatest monkey story I know comes from the pen of St. Mark, who probably got it from the mouth of St. Peter when he was doing his mission in Rome. It's the story of the rich young ruler. No single gospel calls him rich young ruler. One gospel says he was rich, another says he was young, and another says he was a ruler, and put it all together and we have the rich young ruler. I should point out that the word ruler here is not a political title, but it's a title for a ruler in the synagogue, probably more akin to being a senior warden than anything. He's not a rabbi, he's a lay person in charge of the building, the budget, looking after the scripture and the furnitures. The rich young ruler. And he's a very attractive figure. He's the kind of person I think we Anglicans would be very comfortable and at home with. But he comes up and he asks the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now Jesus has here an aside in the story. 
And this confuses a lot of people that it has nothing directly to do with the story. He says, good teacher. And then he asks his question. Jesus latches not onto the question, but onto the title, good teacher. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Now, if you've ever had, as I've had, and I'm glad to have in my home visitors who are the uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, this is a verse in their arsenal to prove that Jesus was not sinless. Jesus was a sinner. According to them, this verse proves it. He is admitting it. But that's not what Jesus says in this verse. Jesus doesn't say that he isn't good, but he says goodness comes from God the Father. Uh, we said in the colic today, oh God, the source of all godliness. The point is not that other people don't have godliness. The point here is that the source of that is God the Father. And here comes Jesus, God the Son, God the second person of the Trinity, and he's saying, even as the second person of the Trinity, my goodness is a derivative goodness. It's a derivative that comes from the Father because all things come from the Father. It's not inherent in him, even as the Son. This is big in Trinitarian theology. In John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus says, I can do nothing on my own accord, but only what I see the Father doing. It's derivative. Or again, we learn in 1 John chapter 4, it says, we love because God first loved us. God is the source of love, and if we are able to love, and all the other derivatives of love, it's because it has come from God. Now that's relevant and directly essential to the story because the difficulty in this story of the rich young ruler is he doesn't understand his goodness is derivative from God. Jesus says, do you keep the commandments? And he enumerates a number of them. And he says, yeah, I do this and I do this and I do this and I do this. He doesn't say I keep the commandments by the grace of God. He doesn't say I keep the Ten Commandments because God working through my rabbi and my teachers and my parents taught me to do so, or God working through my own heart taught me to do this. It's I, I, I. God is absent from his understanding of what eternal life is. What, what do you think when you pray the petition in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread? Do you think of the very next mouthful of food that you're about to take as coming from the hand of God? I often don't. My thought is just as often, well, I work pretty hard for this money. And I went out and I bought the groceries. And I came home and I cooked it. And I laid it out and I made it look good. And then I'm eating, getting ready to eat this food. And then, oddly enough, I pray, Father, thank you for this food. Now, of course, we should understand that both those things are true. God gave me that food, but God gave it indirectly by giving me the ability to work, by giving me a job, by giving me a good church that will hire me to do things. I see God ultimately behind all those things. And this rich young ruler sees none of those things. It's all about him. Now, we need to say here that money in itself isn't bad. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, Paul makes the affirmation, for the love of money is the root of all evil. He doesn't say money's the root of all evil. He says the love of money is the root of all evil. What is money? Money 
is power. I'm holding in my hand liquid power. I can walk into a restaurant, a commercial store, a clothing store, and people jump up and say, hi, can I help you? Can I do something for you? Can I get you a table? Can I show you a shirt? Can I show you a product? Can I help you here? I go and I eat the meal that other people cook and other people bought and other people did. And I don't even stay and wash the dishes. I have power. Power to make them do what I want. Now, there's something efficient about this power, and I'm grateful for that. But there's also something seductive about this power. The problem with money is that money is addictive. As we traffic in money, we become confused. We are to use money and love people, but sadly we end up loving money and using people. Because power is addictive. It's more addictive than tobacco or alcohol or any drug you can think of. You get bitten by that addiction, like I think the rich young ruler was, and it's hard to let that go. The nuts themselves are good, but if they are in a jar set by Satan to imprison you, then they must be forgotten and forsaken. One nut is all you really need for your daily bread, but it is the most frequent snare. And what do you do if you find yourself addicted in that kind of a fashion? The answer is cut it off. Get rid of it. Extreme imprisonment requires extreme process to get free. Uh, east, very far west of us, uh, in which, from Wichita, there was a, a friend of my father's that owned this, this ranch. It wasn't a farm, it was a ranch. And he had problems with coyotes, so he put out these traps to capture the coyotes. We went out there on one occasion, and he showed me a trap which had snapped and was holding the leg of a coyote. And I thought, oh my goodness, this trap has broken off the leg of the coyote. And the man said, no, look more closely, because it was sticking up about this far. The coyote had chewed off its own leg to get free. And I said, well, that's rather gross. He said, yeah, but here's the difference. If I catch them and they're still in the trap, I shoot them. This one bit off his leg. There's a three-legged coyote running around free out there. That's the distinction here. I, I, I thought of entitling this sermon, The Strategy of the Monkey Versus the Strategy of the Coyote. When you're in an extreme measure, do you just want to sit there and grab your uh, little food stuff and, and jump up and down and scream, you're going to be in prison. Or are you willing to bite off and give it away and yet go free? October here at All Saints is Stewardship Month. I'm preaching a stewardship today. I'm preaching a stewardship sermon next week. I'm preaching one in November. And then I think on November 17th, we want to collect those. I hope all of you received a stewardship card. Uh, please take these cards. And don't fill them out, just think about them and pray about them and talk to your spouse about them and talk to God about it. If you didn't receive a card, there's a card in an envelope out in the tower room and you can pick one up there. I have to confess that when I preached my first stewardship sermons, I was terrified. I hated it. I went to my rector and said, please, please, please don't let me preach a stewardship sermon. And he let me off. And then the next three years, I preach a stewardship, and I don't want to think how bad they were, but I hated it. I'm sure the people hated it, too. Because who wants to get up and say to people, well, 
give us money, you should give us money. I mean, that's no fun. It all reminds me of the uh, pig in the story about the pig and the chicken who were out walking on a road and they looked up and saw a sign that said, ham and eggs, all you can eat, two miles, five dollars. And the pig screamed and ran the opposite direction. The chicken went clucking after him, finally got him to stop. And he said, what are you so upset about? The pig said, didn't you see that sign? Chicken said, yeah, ham and eggs, all you can eat, two miles. What's, what's the problem? Well, no problem for you, the pig said. All they want from you is a donation. But from me, they want total commitment. <laughs> Who wants to get up and, and preach that to people? But what I've come to see is that stewardship is itself good news. All of the gospel is good news. Everything in the Bible, if we understand it aright, is good news, including this call to give. I think I have in your bulletin something like uh, 12 or 15 principles of stewardship giving. It's the principles I've discovered over the years and I've preached on over the years. But the one I'm preaching on today is that stewardship and giving is good news because it frees you from your addiction. It's just good for you to give away money. Just give it away. It's good for you. It's a good habit. Get hold of it and go on and just do it. But the problem is we have trouble doing that. Just this morning I went through uh, the Starbucks line and I got up to the window and the woman there said, oh, you don't need to pay anything. The woman behind, uh, in front of you uh, already paid for uh, your sandwich and coffee. Wasn't that nice? How many people have had that happen to them going through the line here? I'm astonished. In other places, it's like 100%. Uh, what a nice thing. Uh, it's just a gift that we can give ourselves. And by doing it, we liberate ourselves. We break the addiction. I want to close with a positive illustration, but I'm not going to do that because the story doesn't close with a positive illustration. It closes with a story of failure. It says the rich young ruler went away sad because he had much goods. I would read that because he was addicted and hadn't learned how to give it away. And what did he lose? The text doesn't say it explicitly, but he has it in his question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he doesn't get, as far as we know, eternal life. And that's a sad story. So here's my closing illustration. It comes from a preacher back in the early 1960s. He was on his honeymoon in Niagara Falls, no surprise about that, except uh, he was a, being a preacher, he didn't have a lot of money, and so uh, he went there the only time he could afford to go to Niagara Falls, and that was in December, the cold of winter. It was 10 degrees, and nobody was up there, nobody was in the hotel. They dropped their prices by 70%, made it possible to be there. This guy was a jogger, so he got up in the morning, and he jogged on the American side. There's a very, very wide pathway if you've ever been there, just beautiful in that. I love the river more than I love the falls. It's just a 
gorgeous river. It's cold and it's fast and it's strong. And he jogged two miles up it and then he turned and he jogged two miles down. As he was returning, it was still twilight, just a little bit of light in the air, but more night than it was uh, morning yet. And this big white herring came and seemed to have landed right on the water and then just started to float on the water. He thought, how is that possible? And then he looked and he looked and he saw that there was a log floating in the water. And it was maybe one or two inches above the water line and it would walk up and then it would lean over and eat some insects and walk back and eat some more insects and then turn around and eat some more. And he says, well, that's marvelous. He just said, unbelievable. It looked like he was walking on water. And then he says, of course, he's going to have to let go because the fall now is only half a mile up there and he's going to have to let go and, and fly off. But he didn't fly off. And so he ran and he passed the hotel where he was and went clear to the end and looked back to see. And here came this log. And yes, the bird put its wings out and began to flap to go free. But it didn't leave the log. It was still tied or connected to the log. And he said, well, let go, let go, because that pume's going to hit you. And that itself could knock the bird out, but it didn't let go. And it was waving and it was waving. And the log came up to the edge and it tipped over and it went over. And still connected to it was this bird waving. And then it disappeared into the darkness. When he went back to breakfast, he asked the Mater D, told the Mater D what had happened. And he says, you've seen a marvel probably two, three, four times a week, we find a bird like that down in the basin below the falls, dead and in the water and floating around. But you saw the cause of it. He said, I don't understand the cause of it. He said, what happened was that bird came down and put its claws into that log and then that water was lapping up onto it and froze it so that he was frozen to the log. And when he wanted to let go and go free, he couldn't let go and go free. And he died. And we don't know what happened to the rich young ruler, but in a similar fashion, he didn't know how to let go. Part of Christian giving with regularity is just the regular practice of letting go and saying, God and his providence can take care of me. May it be so, and it is when you do that, it's good for the church, it's good for the world, and it's good for you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.